Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with today's thoughts on Scripture Uncovered. We read in Matthew chapter 4 at verse 23 that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching, preaching, and healing. And we examined some of Jesus' teaching. We look specifically at the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount, a brilliant teaching, structured in four parts with a clever and memorable introduction, the Beatitudes, six propositions that exceed the law, six concrete actions to implement the law, and a three-part call to action. Seek, knock, find. What a great teaching. But Jesus also went about Galilee preaching and healing. And today, I'd like to have a look at some of Jesus' preaching. Now, teaching is explication of the text taking a literary text, examining it, looking closely at it, putting it under the microscope, and explicating the text. But preaching is application of the text, applying the text to people's lives. What I do in class, and to some extent here on the podcast, is teach. What the pastor does on a Sunday in his homily or sermon is preach. He applies the text, applies the readings read during Mass to your life and to mine. So I'd like to have a look at how Jesus preached. And I want to begin by turning over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And we have a lesson here on the fear of persecution. And let me begin reading it to you, and we'll comment on it as we go. So meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. So before he engages this large and ever-growing crowd, he made a note to his disciples. He said, Be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That word hypocrisy, oh, that's the worst thing Jesus can call anyone, a hypocrite. And the word hypocrisy is from the Greek hypocrites, which is the word for actor, a stage actor. Think back to Greek drama. When the actors came on the stage wearing masks, We had a comedy mask. We had a tragedy mask. A mask. You didn't see the person behind the mask. 
you only saw the mask. So beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees that gets, gets into things, like yeast gets into bread. We could say, well, yeast is a good thing, and it does make some nice bread. But if it's left on the back of the stove to rise, and it keeps rising, and it drops down the sides of the stove, and it gets rancid, the yeast appears good at the start. But if left to run its course, it corrupts. So be aware, be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, pretending to be someone they're not. And he goes on. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. And I remember my grandmother, bless her heart, saying, be very careful what you do in secret, because when you die and you get to heaven, God is going to play a movie for everyone to see of all those secret things that you did that you thought nobody knew about. So it will all come to light. In other words, your mask will be taken off and people will see you as you truly are. So I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Don't be afraid of what's going to happen now. Be afraid of what your actions, your thoughts, your motives will produce long term. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That would be God. But are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? I mean, what's a more common bird than a sparrow? I have a bird feeder out in the backyard and we have lots of little birds living in the bushes on our back fence. And it's springtime. It's June. And those little birds, the eggs are hatching. And I hang up the bird feeder. And I fill that thing up. And it's a big bird feeder. And those little flying pigs eat the whole thing in about a day and a half. Sparrows of all kind. Finches of all kind. But a sparrow the most common bird you can imagine. Are not five sparrows <clears throat> sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. God knows every sparrow that flies in the sky. And indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Well, that's a verse in Scripture that, that I'm anxious about. All the hairs on your head are numbered. Because every morning when I wake up, I give God a math problem to solve. And it's been going on for a while. But don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. If God cares about every common bird in the air, imagine how he cares about you.
So I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, I, will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. Well, that's a pretty important thing to note. If we recognize Christ for who he is and what he did, he is the virgin-born, sinless Son of God who took our sin upon himself, went to the cross bearing that sin, and paid the penalty for that sin on our behalf before a holy and righteous God, thus enabling us to step into the presence of God and be declared righteous or not guilty. The penalty has been paid. If we understand that and if we accept him, he will accept us and present us before the Father. But if we turn our backs on him, we thumb our nose at him, we walk away from him, we have the perfect freedom to do that. And many do. But if we do that, when we step out into eternity, he'll say, I never knew you. I never knew you. And notice, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Well, that's good to know. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That's the unforgivable sin, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? I really want to know, because if there's an one sin that's unforgivable, I want to be sure not to commit it. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, to understand that, we need to understand the role of the Holy Spirit himself. And we noted when the reboot of Scripture Uncovered began, the day after Pentecost. Pentecost marked the birth of the church as a covenant community under grace. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended and is now in residence here on this earth and within our own hearts. And what's the job of the Holy Spirit? The job of the Holy Spirit is twofold. One, having to do with you and me personally. The other, having to do with the church as a corporate body. The Holy Spirit's job for us personally is also twofold. We're born into this world in a condition of sin, a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. That's just the way it is, thanks to Genesis chapter 3. So what do we do about that? Well, God presented a plan to address it. The Holy Spirit's job, first of all, in the world with you and me is to hold up the mirror of reality that we can look into and recognize the truth of that statement, that we desperately need a Savior. There's nothing we can do on our own to make ourselves right before God. We desperately need Christ. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit in the world, to hold up that mirror of reality and see ourselves in it, much like Oscar Wilde's novel, Picture of Dorian Gray. Oh, a brilliant, 
handsome young man who lived a very decadent life. And he never seemed to age. He always looked attractive. He was always the, the star. But he had a portrait painted of himself. And he noticed the portrait kept getting older and more disfigured. And he finally put it away up in the attic. And the whole story continues on. And he's the brilliant, dashing young man. But all the while, that portrait deteriorated up in the attic. It was a picture of Dorian Gray's soul. So the job of the Holy Spirit is to hold up that mirror of reality so we can see ourselves as we truly are. And once we recognize that, the Holy Spirit will lead us to a place where Christ comes into our life. Once we do get to that place, then the job of the Holy Spirit takes on another role. The Holy Spirit lives within us to do two things. Number one, to comfort us and nurture us. It's hard living a Christian life, especially in our world today. It's a very hard thing. But the Holy Spirit is there saying, look, I know it's hard. Here, lean on me. I'll help you do this. And that's a good thing. As I can remember times, and you may well remember times in your life too, when I was in places and doing things that I shouldn't have been in and doing. And I could just imagine the Holy Spirit sitting on the bar stool next to me, looking at me and saying, what are we doing here? Let's get out of here. Well, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. You can count on me, he says. I am here with you. The second job of the Holy Spirit for us personally is to equip us to live this Christian life, to provide gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about these spiritual gifts in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, and he lists several as examples. But it's not an exhaustive list. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of gifts of the Holy Spirit. And our job is to recognize what our gift is, then nurture and develop that gift and put it to use. Teaching is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Preaching is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Healing is a gift of the Holy Spirit. They're countless. I suppose if I have a gift of the Holy Spirit, it's teaching. I can't imagine what else it might be. I've tried other things, but this seems to be it. But that's the job of the Holy Spirit for us. The job of the Holy Spirit regarding the church is to nurture and guide the church down through the ages. And I have to tell you that sometimes the church doesn't listen very well. And when the church is not attentive to the Holy Spirit and goes off on its own, bad things happen. And if you study the history of the Christian church from the very beginning on the day of Pentecost, AD 32, right up until this very day, you can spot the times when the church is paying no attention whatever to the Holy Spirit. This whole sexual scandal that our church, the Catholic Church, has been undergoing since 
the early 2000s is a good example. But when the church is attentive to the Holy Spirit, then the church can do heroic things. And there are many times in the history of the church when that has been the case. So, the Holy Spirit is here to help. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Flat out refusing to recognize the reality of the Holy Spirit and the job the Holy Spirit has in our lives and in the life of the church. His job is to nurture us personally and corporately as a church. And if we refuse, absolutely refuse, to look into that mirror of reality, reject it totally, well, that's the unforgivable sin. Not because God won't forgive that. God will forgive every sin you commit. All you need to do is ask. But that sin can't be forgiven because you won't allow it to be forgiven. You won't recognize the reality of the sin and you'll walk away. And you have total freedom to do that. We all do. We can accept the Lord Jesus Christ or not. God will never force you one way or the other. We noted in the podcast about the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel offered to Mary the opportunity to be the mother of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And boy, she had everything to lose. Joseph, she could have been stoned. And there was that pregnant pause before she accepted. She could have said no. She had the perfect freedom to do that. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, well, that's unforgivable because you won't allow yourself to be forgiven. Now, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you'll say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Well, that's pretty good. <laughs> it applies, I suppose, at times of persecution, that when push comes to shove, you'll have the words you need to defend not just yourself, but to defend Christ. We can't apply it to teaching and preaching. I can tell you for sure, I've been teaching for a long time, 30 years now, teaching scripture pretty much every day, one place or another. And to teach, you have to be prepared. To preach, you have to be prepared. Now think of your parish or your church and your pastor. Getting up to preach a sermon. Have you ever heard a pastor who wasn't prepared? Have you ever heard a pastor just wing it? It's not a pretty sight. Some think, well, I'll get up there and the Holy Spirit will give me the words. <laughs> you got to laugh at that. I'll tell you what the Holy Spirit will do. The Holy Spirit will be up in the corner of the church, looking down on you, laughing at you as you twist in the wind to make a fool of yourself up at the pulpit. 
seen it happen many a time. Well, we move now from this lesson on fear of persecution to a lesson on detachment and radical simplicity. And I want to take you now again to Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Now, someone in the crowd said to him, oh, <clears throat> excuse me, teacher. Now, remember, we have a big crowd, a thousand people, and the crowd's growing, and it's back and forth with Jesus. Don't let this linear progression of our text undermine the give and take of what's going on in the crowd. So someone in the crowd, as Jesus was speaking to his disciples and telling them about not fearing persecution, someone waved his hand and said, excuse me, teacher, yo, over here, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Well, apparently, someone in the family died and the older brother got all the inheritance. The younger brother said, tell him to share that with me. Jesus replied, dude, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, now watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable. A parable. Jesus taught often in parables. He used parables to preach, to take a teaching and apply it to a person's life. A parable is a clever and memorable story that illuminates a common truth in a striking and memorable fashion. A parable from the Greek para alongside, like paramedic or paralegal, and the verb bola to throw. So a parable is a clever and memorable story thrown alongside old ordinary truth that you've heard so many times you don't even hear it anymore to illuminate that truth in a striking and memorable fashion. So he told them a parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, hmm, what shall I do? I, I have no place to store my crops. The barns aren't big enough. And then he said, this, I got it. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, now you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward 
God. I remember teaching this parable at Trinity Presbyterian Church. Oh gosh, it's got to be 15 years ago now. It was a big class. We had five, 600 people in that class. And in the front row, people always sit in the same place. You notice that in church. You have your own pew. Kind of odd. People go to church and sit in their own pew. <laughs> but I was teaching this parable. And I ended by saying, there are no pockets in a shroud. And then the first hour of class was over. We took our break. And I had told the class, and I'll tell you here right now on Scripture Uncovered, if I say something that's not right, if I'm in error, I want to know. Let me know. Because I'll examine it, and if I'm incorrect, I'll change the way I teach it. And I've done that many a time. I've made plenty of mistakes. The last one, I think, was in June of 1978. No, I'm just kidding you. Well, there are no pockets in a shroud. So at the break, a couple who sat in the front row on my left came up. And he said to me, you told me that if you ever said anything incorrect to let you know. Well, I'm an undertaker and there are pockets in a shroud. Who would have known? <laughs> but there you have it. So, be on guard. It's a lesson on detachment and radical simplicity. We can store up all these things in our life. We can acquire possessions. Oh, we have friends here in San Diego who are collectors of pretty much everything. Their house is like a museum. And what's going to happen to it? I remember when my father was in hospice care. He died when he was 84. That was in 2008. And while he was in hospice care, I flew back to Pittsburgh every, uh, every weekend to be with him. And my two brothers were there as well. And my youngest brother, Bob, said, Dad, I was over at the house, and you, you have a lot of stuff there. What are you going to do with all that crap when you die? And my dad looked at him and very calmly said, nothing, you are. <laughs> and sure enough, that's what happened. Well, storing up all that stuff, you know, we have things we collect, things we like. I collect things too. But in the end, you're going to leave without it. So enjoy it while you can, but don't count on it. Well, that brings us right up to a close, I think. So let me stop there and uh, encourage you to check out logosbiblestudy.com. We've just started our final course of a seven-year program on the minor prophets. And uh, they're available to you. If you go online on the website, you can sign up for that course. The minor prophets, they're minor not because they're less important. They're minor because they're shorter in length. Isaiah is 66 chapters. Obadiah is one chapter. Take a look. I'm writing those lectures right now and recording them as well. So anyhow, good being with you. Thank you for being here, and I'll see you again soon. Bye-bye now.